It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. China and America have fallen out noisily over Hong Kong. Can the global financial centre survive the quarrel? Hello. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and coming up on today's show, the growing empire of the warehouse king. We're in the business of being invisible most of the time, and uh, now we're becoming visible. And why lockdown has led to a bicycle boom. All over the Western world, from Bogota to Berlin, bike shops have been selling out. First, tensions rising between America and China have left Hong Kong caught between the two rival powers. On May the 28th, the Chinese government commissioned a new security law for Hong Kong, one which will give the central government new powers to crush dissent. In response, the White House proposed removing the preferential treatment that Hong Kong enjoys, compared with mainland China, which helps its commercial and financial system to be seamlessly connected with that of the West. Can the multi-trillion dollar financial centre survive America's and China's decoupling? Patrick Fowles is The Economist's business affairs editor based in London. Hello, Patrick. Hi. And Simon Cox is our emerging markets editor based in Hong Kong. Hi, Simon. Hi, how are you doing? Simon, can I turn to you first, uh, because you're in Hong Kong. What's the mood like there at the moment? Are businesses concerned by the news that's come out of Beijing and out of Washington? The dominant mood is just fatigue. Uh, it's been you know, almost a year now of one thing after another, the protests, the pandemic. Uh, we've just been enjoying a month of relative calm because Hong Kong's handled the virus so well. Businesses were beginning to revive. You know, it's possible now to go to a restaurant and not find a free table. And so the last thing anyone wanted was a resumption of uh, unrest or a resumption of the trade war between America and China. And so I think some businesses, they certainly don't have the energy to oppose this law in the way that some did actually support the protesters back in June 2019 when all of this began. Uh, some of them are allowing themselves to believe that this national security law might actually help, that it might uh, deter unrest and deter protest. But by and large, uh, people just want to uh, get back to normal and they want uh, US-China relations to stabilise. And Patrick, if I can ask you, if America does go ahead with its plans, what effect might that have on Hong Kong standing as a global financial centre? Well, to answer that, you have to get your hands around what Hong Kong does. And obviously, it's the place where uh, global money meets uh, China. And there's a huge number of financial firms, banks, multinational companies who have their base in Hong Kong. Behind that lies a confidence that, that Hong Kong can act seamlessly with the Western financial system and particularly America's. 
And that involves everything from regulations on banking to moving dollars around the world uh, to ease of, of travel and visas. What America's proposed doing, the White House has suggested, is one of the pieces of legislation underpinning that privileged status Hong Kong has, known as the Hong Kong Policy Act, might be amended or withdrawn. But the critical thing really will be the fine print. If the Americans uh, simply limit things like the physical movement of goods over Hong Kong's borders into America, frankly, it's not really a big deal because Hong Kong doesn't make much anymore. If, however, the US government starts to compromise Hong Kong's status as a place where you can move money around freely, uh, particularly US dollars, then that's a different question and something that could easily cause a much bigger financial problem across the global system. And what do you make of the way markets have responded to this? Because it's been rather less dramatic a response than one might have expected. Yes, that's right. I mean, there was an initial stock market reaction when the Chinese uh, security law proposal was floated roughly a week ago. But since then, things have been stable. And from talking to our sources in Hong Kong, it's clear, for example, there hasn't been any sudden outflow of bank deposits from the territory in the last few days. So the initial signs are that people are taking this in their stride. But let's not forget that the details and full ramifications of America's decision to start treating Hong Kong a bit more like China are still out there and you know do present a source of risk. And if we can try and look forward a bit further now, Patrick, what do you think is likely to happen? I mean, from what you say, that it seems that the effect on the financial links with America will all depend on the detail and what America actually does. Yes, I mean, I think there's a couple of issues there. One is whether there's either a deliberate or mistaken measure taken by the US, which actually does upset this rather delicate web of payments and legal arrangements that connect it with Hong Kong. If that were to happen, it would be a big deal. I think if it doesn't happen, uh, we face a different scenario. And that is probably that over time, uh, as China exerts more influence over Hong Kong, Hong Kong's institutions decay somewhat and uh, they become a bit more like China's. And as a result, probably over time, Hong Kong's connectivity with the rest of the world is compromised a bit too. Now, from a, a both a Chinese and a Hong Kong perspective, there is another source of business, and that is to do uh, even more business with China and you know become an even more China-centric financial hub. That would clearly have, have advantages for, for China and Hong Kong, but it might mean the sophistication and capabilities of China's capital markets are uh, hurt. I see. No, I, I suppose over time, as the Chinese economy continues to become relatively more important, that may become relatively more attractive to and relatively less damaging to Hong Kong. The other factor, of course, is that America has become less hospitable to mainland Chinese companies. So one reason why there's been such stability in the currency here and in the financial flows here is that everyone's expecting big Chinese tech firms that might otherwise have remained happily listed on the US stock markets to have uh, follow-on secondary listings in Hong Kong. Some of them might even delist from America and uh, move to Hong Kong. Now, you mentioned the currency there, Simon, and that's something that I really do want to ask you about because Hong Kong's had this long-term peg of its own dollar to the American dollar at 780. Is that peg at risk as relations deteriorate? 
I think it's probably the last thing that will fall. Uh, I think an awful lot of bad things will have to happen in the world before the peg will break. It is an unusually robust peg. Hong Kong has a very large foreign exchange reserves uh, relative to the size of its money supply. And it also has a number of buffers, regulatory measures that are designed to insulate things like the property market, the banking system, from very high interest rates, uh, which would be necessary to defend the peg in extremis. But there's, there's something you have to consider here. We've seen often in financial matters that small things have disproportionate effects. And there's an enormous difference between a 0% chance of something happening and a 1%, a much bigger difference than there is between, let's say, you know, a 30% chance and a 31%. So at the moment, everyone considers a Hong Kong dollar to be you know, freely convertible with the US dollar at a predictable exchange rate. Even having to think about the possibility that it might not be is quite an important financial fact, even if it never happens. So the the small seed of uncertainty of doubt, the small worry that America might uh, overstep, that it might take a measure against a a Hong Kong bank that has broader ramifications, that could have uh, ripple effects. It could affect money that is in Hong Kong but could be anywhere else and would move even with a really small uh, perturbation or move even with a small excuse. And Patrick, what else should companies and investors be keeping an eye on going forward? Well, I think one thing to watch is obviously that dollar system that Simon just described and the you know the one percent risk or two percent risk factor. I think another key thing over the medium term is just to watch Hong Kong's institutions. So obviously, the concern is that Hong Kong's government itself has been or is now under the thumb of of China's government completely. The interesting question is whether that has a knock-on effect on a series of effectively independent and highly competent bodies in Hong Kong that run the financial system. And that includes the courts, uh, but also the central bank and the securities regulators. And I think if there's a sense that that very valuable bit of soft infrastructure is being messed around with by the Chinese government directly, then that really will be another quite damaging event for Hong Kong. And whether or not they're prepared to cross that line, of course, is not clear, but it's definitely something to watch. Patrick Fowles and Simon Cox, thank you both very much. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. And you can read more about the situation in Hong Kong in this week's Economist. Try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. 
Henry Trix, our Schumpeter columnist, took a little socially distanced trip to see the empire of the Warehouse King. It's very bucolic. There are canal boats, there are market gardens, and then you hit the North Circular, a very busy ring road at the top of London. And near there is a shopping centre that really looks like ground zero for the retail apocalypse. So it looks dreadful, but at the same time, it is actually turning into potentially one of the hottest properties on the real estate market. It was bought in January by the world's biggest warehouse company, an American company called Prologis, which is run by a man called Hamid Mogadam, who is um, Amazon's biggest landlord. I got the chance to speak to him recently from his home in San Francisco, and he gave me a sense of the simply vast scale of Prologis's operations. Logistics is an industry that nobody even thinks about unless there's a problem. Two and a half to 3% of global GDP flows through our buildings. We're in 19 countries around the world, and we own about a billion square feet uh, of real estate in these countries. We represent the global economy. So basically, anytime you need to move a physical product, uh, food, drugs, anything physical, you basically need a warehouse on the consumption side to handle that movement of good. So, Henry, how did Prologis get ahead? Mr. Mogadam was a young property developer just coming into the dot-com boom. Um, he was taken with the idea of e-commerce. He was particularly drawn to invest in a company called Webvan. It actually turned out to be the biggest bust of the dot-com era. And as he actually confided to me, he was also given the opportunity to invest in a, another startup called Amazon. But he decided that its, um, its horizons were far too narrow compared to Webvan books. How could you possibly make a big business out of that? I guess he ruse that particular decision. But he got the, the bug for online shopping. And he decided that what he would do is pour billions of dollars, which he'd raised from his investors, into buying vacant space in airports, close to railway facilities, etc., where he could set up warehouses because he could see that eventually e-commerce was going to boom. It's been a long, slow process because e-commerce has taken time to embed itself in the economy. But the pandemic has really accelerated the adoption of e-commerce in America, in Europe. Um, and this is probably going to reinforce Prologis's position. Surprisingly, actually, demand for our products started spiking right after the pandemic hit. We saw certain segments of our business, including e-commerce, groceries, drugstores, really explode in terms of demand. In the long term, we actually see a much greater and robust uh, demand picture for our properties because uh, supply chains are going to be reconfigured for more resilience. And e-commerce is much more space intensive than normal retail for warehouses. So I'm great in the immediate term after COVID, great in the long term. I think there's going to be a lull for the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Okay, so he, he got it wrong about Amazon in the beginning, but he certainly got it right about e-commerce. And as you say, he's now Amazon's biggest landlord. Does he have any competition? 
Well, he has consolidated the industry in part by spending $30 billion or so to buy up some of his competitors. But yes, he has a very formidable rival emerging now in the form of Blackstone, one of the world's biggest private equity companies. It's also been spending a fortune on buying up warehouse companies. It claims that its favourite investment at the moment is in fact logistics. So it's hard on his heels. That sounds like a pretty interesting combination because Stephen Schwartzman, the head of Blackstone and Hamid Mogadam are quite different characters and their companies are obviously very different beasts. Yes, it's hard to imagine Steve Schwartzman getting as excited about sort of industrial wastelands as Prologis' boss is. You know, in this contest, you have basically the king of warehouses versus a master of the universe. There are many who play down the threat of Blackstone because it doesn't, as people see it, have the sort of staying power to uh, develop the long-term relationships that Prologis has. But I think um, one shouldn't ever underestimate Blackstone. It's actually been in the business now for almost a decade. It has a huge amount of dry powder, $45 billion worth of dry powder that it wants to invest in property. So I think you can expect this battle to remain quite hot for the years ahead. Henry, with almost every story that we're covering at the moment, we end up talking about how the pandemic has changed this and how the pandemic has changed that. But this really is an industry, isn't it? E-commerce and warehousing, where the pandemic seems to have sped up really quite quickly. A lot of changes that that were already in train. Yes, absolutely. And um, even though some of the businesses that rent warehouse space are suffering, you know, they're, they're not able to pay their rents. They're asking for rent rebates, that sort of thing. It's a market where demand is blisteringly strong. In fact, Mr. Mogadam says this is the tightest real estate market he's ever seen. We're in the business of being invisible most of the time, and uh, now we're becoming visible. There's a lot of talk about alternative manufacturing locations and the export model from China to Europe and the U.S. is coming under question. I'm honestly not smart enough to know how that's going to play out with tariffs and trade wars and all that. But the important thing is that the end consumer doesn't really care where the product comes from as long as it's consumed by them. Our strategy is to surround major cities around the world with big populations and big incomes. And we continue to think that that's a really good strategy long term. One of the problems that they were struggling with before the pandemic was a shortage of both land and labour. What we've seen in the last few months is clearly there's going to be more land made available because shops and uh, retail parks are being forced to close. And sadly, we're also seeing a huge rise in unemployment, which is going to mean more workers who will be happy, I guess, to find a job in a warehouse. So this provides the warehouse companies with a, a real opportunity, in a sense, to boost their public relations and try and burnish a better image of themselves. I found this as I cycled back down the Lee Valley to the East End um, at the end of a long 10 mile trip you can see down there a warehouse which um, Prologis is developing which is very different from the warehouses of the past so the idea is that they take a kind of a really nice Victorian building and they 
put green space around it and they put solar panels on the roof and lots of windows and it has a gym and it has an atrium. It looks very trendy indeed. So I think that this is their opportunity to be able to say, hey, you know, warehouses can be really nice places to work as well. So we're seeing retail parks becoming wholesale parks and we're seeing the the warehouses of the future. Henry, thanks very much indeed. Great talking to you, Patrick. And finally, Henry Trix isn't the only person donning a helmet and taking to his bicycle. Lockdown has brought blissfully empty roads and with it a new desire by people all over the world to get on the saddle. Sales of bikes have been astronomical all over the Western world, from Bogota to Berlin. Richard Cockett has been writing about this for The Economist. Bike shops have been selling out. In fact, most bike shops, certainly for the cheaper bikes, sold out months ago. Everyone reports an enormous rush. Queues outside shops, especially in the big American cities. There are no aggregate figures but individual shops report bike sales doubling or tripling on the same month compared to a year ago. And some cities look after cyclists much better than others, don't they? How have some of them been changing to make way for this new sort of rush of uh, enthusiastic cyclists? You're absolutely right. At the top of the list, of course, of those um, North European two, Amsterdam and Copenhagen, in Copenhagen, capital of Denmark, about 60% of commuters get to their work or university on a cycle. In New York, the figure's probably about 1% or something. So there are enormous differences. But um, in order to catch up, those cities like New York or um, Seattle, London, Paris, Milan, lots of other cities, they've been closing their roads or parts of their roads to cars to make more room for cyclists and for pedestrians. And as you mentioned, Richard, this boom has been going on in the United States as well as in Europe. And I spoke to Jen Dice, who's the chief operating officer of People for Bikes, which is an American nonprofit whose aim is to make cycling more accessible. We did a small survey of about a thousand Americans last week. Of those, 11% said that they purchased a bike since COVID started and about two thirds of those have children. So a lot of families are really thinking about how do we get out? How do we exercise? How do we get our kids and our family moving? And we know that um, about 18% of American adults plan to purchase a bike in the next three months too. And 50% of it say it's because of COVID. And the United States is a country that we think of as having been built around almost four the motor car. So can you paint us a picture, though, of what it's like in different American cities for cyclists, how cycling provisions um, compare and vary in different places across America? What we've been seeing in the last few weeks is a marked change with how cities are moving their residents around their communities. A lot of cities are turning to closing down streets to cars or curtailing car access and opening them to people and to bikes with open streets events, you know, pop-up protected bike lanes, really rethinking their cities. So you've seen, you know, communities like Seattle open up 20 miles of streets to pedestrians. Oakland has a slow streets movement with 74 miles. New York is shooting for 100 miles. So we've really been seeing mayors and community leaders rethink how they move their residents around their communities and giving them space to get outside and walk and ride bikes. 
Now, the uh, the really big question, do you think this is going to last? Is this going to be a long-term trend or once the pandemic has, has passed, as we all hope it will, will things just go back to the way they were and still be oriented around the car once again? Well, the bottom line is bike infrastructure. If you don't have a safe, comfortable place to ride from where you live to where you want to go, it's really challenging to ride a bike. And we're going to work to prevent us from going back to sort of pre-COVID car culture ways. And we think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think there's a lot of potential. City leaders are really looking to the changes that they've been making for mobility, for air quality, for personal health, and seeing that a bicycle can be a small part of that overall solution. So I think there's a lot of hope, Patrick, that this big bike boom that you're seeing around the world and in the United States, a high percentage of those folks will continue to ride their bikes. Richard, do you agree with Jen? Is this enthusiasm likely to last? Well, all I can say is I hope so, (laughs) but I have big doubts. She's absolutely correct. Infrastructure is the key. Safety is key. So, for instance, Britain's Transport Minister has announced a £2 billion investment in infrastructure for cyclists and pedestrians. Let's see if any of that um, actually materialises. There are other things governments can do, more parking spaces for cycles, changes in the law. If all those things are done, if there's a coordinated push, then yes, uh, I think there is a future for more cycling. But you also have to remember this COVID-19, this has been happening in beautiful weather here, particularly in Europe. I gather also in the United States, so it's the best time of year for cycling. Can the politicians and city authorities get all this in place for winter, when, of course, the incentives for hopping in your on your bike are much less? Let's see. I certainly hope so. And new technologies are being applied to all sorts of unlikely areas, if you like. But in cycling, this is happening too, isn't it? There's uh, E-cycling is booming along with the more conventional sort. Yeah, electric cycling. This is where you just add a small motor and a battery to a conventional bike. You pedal a little bit and the motor does the rest. The idea of this is that it it will help with longer commutes. You know, it's okay to cycle a couple of kilometres to work or to to play, but if you've got a slightly longer commute, that can be a bit um, stressful and leave you out of path. So e-bikes help to take the strain. They're already booming. Um, E-bikes were booming in in March in the States, for instance. Sales went up by about 85% on the same period the previous year. So they're going to be popular. Capital money is pouring into these developments and various e-bikes startups. So, yeah, new technology could help cycling. It's not quite the same as doing all the pedaling yourself, but it should certainly help. And, you know, some cities like Utrecht, they are um, already introducing fast e-cycle lanes, so dedicated e-cycle lanes for people to use this form of transport so they can go further faster. So cycling's getting easier in more ways than one. Indeed. Richard Cockett, thanks very much. Thank you, Patrick. And our thanks too to Jen Dice. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.